This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, can swearing get your point across online? Catherine Lafreniere, Assistant Professor of Marketing at the University of Alberta, shares her research that looks into how profanity can help with online reviews. People get it when you swear the right way. Hank the Hacker, an expert hacker with the Shift, tells us how a tech company cloned Canada's $30 million estimated, that flexes that number, ArriveCan app in 48 hours. We also dig into how hundreds of millions of dollars were stolen in the world of crypto. Plus... We celebrate the start of the NHL season by playing game showing, including a very special guest appearance from Cami Kepke of Global Sports in Calgary. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Thanks to an internet outage in Ontario. We had a little bit of hiccup there, but we are all set to go and play game showy. That's right, my friends. It's time for Game Showy. It's a game show on the radio. Here's your host, Ryan O'Donnell. Call me Bobby Orr because we're doing some good old-fashioned trivia. And this time, my friends, it's Game Showy NHL Edition. Yes, hockey trivia to celebrate the return of Canada's favorite sport. Contestants Shane and Brendan are here and are going to face off in a very competitive game of Game Showy. And uh, I've got my ref uh, outfit on. And uh, yeah, I think this is going to be a bloodbath. So here's how it works if you're new to Game Showy. Each contestant will pick a question and a category. Now, today we are playing for, of course, Stanley Cups. A question worth one Stanley Cup would be nice and easy. Three Stanley Cups, the three-peat, that's going to be a very difficult question. Now, we have three categories, players, teams, and NHL oddities, all specifically NHL-related, not world hockey specifically related to the National Hockey League, okay? Now, if you get the question right, you get to hear this fantastic sound. That's right, the Brass Bonanza. Excellent. However, if you get it wrong, you're going to hear some bad news. The play is offside, so there's no goal. No goal. No goal, no point. Clear? Are we clear on that? Clear. Excellent. Good. No coach's challenge on that. I love it. Now, so we've got the three categories. We've got the three types and difficulties of questions, but we also have something very special, and it's called the text line special. When you hear that sound, something special is about to happen. This is a question for the listeners and the listeners only, meaning randomly. This question is hidden. When one of the contestants stumbles across it, it will be the listener's answer that will provide either the winning points, two points, or nothing. So get your phones ready. We're going to ask the question now. 877-399-9898. That number again, 877-399-9898. Now, normally, my rather timid voice would be the one asking the question, but we have a very special guest 
to actually introduce the text line special, don't we, Shane? Uh, We absolutely do. Um, Cammie Kepke is a sports anchor at Global in Calgary, and Cammie has your very special text line game showy question. What exceedingly stylish NHL team wore Cooperalls? The hockey pants with the waist-to-ankle outer shell. Was it the New York Rangers, the Philadelphia Flyers, the Calgary Flames, or the Montreal Canadiens? All right, 877-399-9898. What is your answer to that question? What stylish NHL hockey team wore Cooperalls? If you send in your text messages, you could be helping me win or BK win, depending on who lands on that particular question. Let's hit it, BK. Our three categories here on Game Showy include players, teams, and oddities. It's time to play Game Showy. Bob? Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Well, for the first time in a very, very long time, uh, Brendan Kelly actually gets to go first, and that's because Shane Hewitt is coming off of a sweep. The last game showy round, Shane swept. Got every question right, Brendan, not a single point. So, Brendan, you do get to go first this time. Okay, and I'll say if Shane doesn't sweep this one, uh, it's almost a loss because last time I watched a hockey game, I was... I don't know, was it 1998 maybe? Um, okay, wow, good. yeah. So, good. Yeah, this is really where my American half shines here. We don't watch hockey. What's it on ESPN 6? I don't know. Um, let's. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with an easy one then. Players uh, for one. Players for one. For one Stanley Cup. Brendan Kelly, who was the fastest player in NHL history to reach 1,000 career points was it Guy Lafleur, Mario Lemieux Gordie Howe or Wayne Gretzky wow those are all names of hockey those are probably the only four hockey players I can name too to be honest Mm -hmm. of those four um so Guy Mario Gordie or Wayne uh I don't know I have no clue. I'll I'll just go with um I'll go with Wayne because he's the he's the king of the king the of the great hockey. one. Yeah, the great one. That's the word. The yeah. great. That's the that's the one. Well, the, it's kind of the default. When in doubt, maybe take a guess that it's Wayne Gretzky, uh, which is a good rule to follow because that is indeed the correct answer. <laughs> Very nice. Nice. December nineteenth, nineteen eighty four. Just his 424th career game, Wayne Gretzky still playing for the Oilers, two goals, four assists, and became the fastest NHL player to reach that 1,000 career point record, beating Guy Lafleur. I got one. in 720 games. Nuts. Wow. You got one Stanley Cup? I got one. I was not expecting to get one. All right. My go then. Your Players, go, teams, or oddities here on Game Show. I'm Shane Hewitt. I am going to go for oddities for mm-hmm. two Stanley Cups, Ryan. For do. Okay, here's your question. This is a weird one. How did Maple Leafs owner, prior, old Maple Leafs owner, Harold Ballard, 
I'm sorry for Toronto. That's a name that probably just triggered you. How did Leafs owner Harold Ballard avoid complying with a new NHL rule that required nameplates on jerseys? Did he make them the same color as the jersey to hide them? Did he just completely ignore the rule? Or did he make the names incredibly tiny on the jersey so no one could read them? I'm going to go with the uh, same color, Ryan. Going with the same color as the jersey. Nice color coordination, Shane. Very nice. That is the correct answer. 1977 was the first year the NHL mandated nameplates on the backs. Harold didn't like it, so he made the letters the same color as the uniform. Wow. That's a thing that actually happened. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, it's just Harold Ballard, man. Oh, okay. Well, we got a nice uh, two-to-one lead here. Shane has two Stanley Cups, Brendan Kelly with one, and it is your turn, Brendan. Oh, okay. Uh, So I got to take the lead, but I got to do it as easily as possible for me who... um, who doesn't who doesn't know a thing about hockey okay um i believe there's a tragically hip lyric that works something about not knowing something about <laughs> hockey that goes with their swearing interview from earlier yeah. They, yeah. they wrote that song about me uh let's go with uh teams for two teams for two well okay this is an american hockey related question so perhaps this will help oh, you a little bit Brenda. American. Okay. Yeah. the new jersey devils were not an expansion team. They were previously relocated. In fact, they were actually relocated twice before landing in Joyzy. What team were the New Jersey Devils before they became the Devils? The Colorado Rockies, Kansas City Scouts, Cleveland Barons, or the St. Louis Eagles? Um... Let me think here. Okay, it's either between St. Louis or Colorado. St. Louis to me strikes me as like older, like much older, a much older hockey town. And Colorado mm-hmm. strikes me as one of those like newer expansion, like when everything was trendy, they wanted one. Um, uh, I'll go with the Colorado Rockies. That is a correct, my friend. Yes. Look at you go. Wow. The Rockies actually played a couple years there. In fact, Don Cherry actually coached that team for a while. They relocated to Joyzy, which they have since been the New Jersey Devils, a very successful team born out of two very unsuccessful teams. Before that, they were the Kansas City Scouts, by the way. Yes, there was a hockey team in Kansas City. Fun fact. Wow, can I guess or can I guess? You can guess. You're a good guesser. All right. Uh, It's Game Showy. I'm Shane Hewitt. Our current score is Brendan 3. Me, I have 2. Ryan O'Donnell is the host. And I'm going to go with players, NHL players, for two Stanley Cups, right? Two. Shane, here's your question. Who was the first NHL player to score 50 goals in just one season, was it Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr, Eddie Shore, or Maurice Richard? 
Well, I know that you wouldn't put Maurice Richard in there as a Canadians fan unless that was the answer. And he was also uh, the earliest of all of the things. So I'm going with the Rocket. Uh, Yes, that is correct. (laughs) You don't need to know hockey trivia when you can just read Ryan's bad habits. You can just, it's just, yes, sure, a little bit of Canadian's bias is definitely going to sneak its way into this. The, uh, yeah, 1944-1945 season, Rocket Richard did it. 50 goals in a season in 50 games. Very nice. Well done. We have a very close game here. Four Stanley Cups, two, three. Three. Very surprising. Brendan, where are we going? Uh, okay, so I got to do the thing again where I take the lead as easily as possible. So I got to do it with the two, and the only two remaining is oddities for two. Well, that's weird because you just stumbled across oh, the tax line special. Very congratulations, nice. Brandon. You must be very excited. I am. So excited. this is the special good. This is the special question that you cannot answer. Only the listeners can answer. The question and the answer are about to be revealed, and we have so so many texts, just a ridiculous amount. And uh, I think it's time to find out if you did. Now, we have a special guest, Cami Kepke from Global Calgary, our sports nerd is helping us out with the text line special. So, Cammy, what was the question and what was the answer? So, which NHL team wore Cooperalls? The New York Rangers, the Philadelphia Flyers, the Calgary Flames, or the Montreal Canadiens? Technically, technically, no NHL team ever wore Cooperalls. The Philadelphia Flyers and the Hartford Whalers wore CCM Pro Guards. It's like a case where you say Zamboni, but you actually mean an ice resurfacing machine unless it is Zamboni brand. It's controversial yet brave, I know. Wow. Wow, There you go. I didn't even know that. However, the myth of the Cooperall is tied to one team, and that team is the Philadelphia Flyers. And over 90% of the texts that we got for the text line special picked the Philadelphia Flyers, meaning, Brendan, you get the two points from the text line special. Yeah, I'm dominating. Very dominating. Dominating. (laughs) He's very excited, Shane. Yeah. He's very excited. All right, like, go get an icing penalty. Shane, that's bad, right? When they icing... Is, is that bad? That's icing. Yeah, that's bad. Not a, that's okay, not a you penalty. don't do that. Offside. No. Offside. <laughs> okay. Um, we got to do this quick here, so I guess I get to go. It is five Stanley Cups for Brennan, four Stanley Cups for Shane, and we don't have any two Stanley Cup questions. So that means I unfortunately have to go with a difficult one uh, to you get do. this correct. Um. All right. I'm going to go with players for three Stanley Cups, Ryan. Players for three Stanley Cups. What NHL player recorded this absolutely incredible feat? A shorthanded, power play, even strength, penalty shot, and empty net goal all within one game. One game. Every single type of goal you can score in one game. Who did it? Was it Wayne Gretzky, Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, or Mario Lemieux? That's five goals in a game. Not many people do that. Five goals. All different. In, in today's world, you win a million dollars from a grocery store, if that's the case. Um, 
I'm going to go with... Ooh, I don't think Connor McDavid's done it. Wayne Gretzky, probably, but I don't know if he was on the penalty kill. So I'm going to go with Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby is... Oh, that's incorrect. I'm sorry, Shane. The play is offside, so there's no goal. No ah, goal. Sorry. What? Brendan. Yeah. You, oh, you, no. You, you technically won, but you've got five seconds to uh, get the answer if you know it. John Elway. No. Uh, it was uh, Mario Andretti. Mario Lemieux. <laughs> Mario Andretti's funny. <laughs> yes. Mario Lemieux was the one to do it. Yes. Number three first. I think he Googled it. I mean, he wins anyway, but I think he Googled it. Well, it was Tom Brady. Tom Brady. No, he you deflates the puck. to get that right to win. So, yeah. Oh. The, the frozen biscuit. You can't tamper with the biscuit. All right. Well, there it is. Yes. That's Game Showy with your winner, Brendan Kelly. He takes the win back even though he can't skate. Join us next time on... <laughs> join Collapsed ankles and all. That's BK on skates. Um, I can join skate. us next time on Game Showy. Get your pet spayed or neutered. Oh, man. This is the Shift Podcast. WTF. Now, you know what that means. Everybody knows what that means. Sometimes in our lives, we have a really good story to tell. And sometimes we just can't find the word. And then there's one word that somehow makes it feel so much better to say. Joining me now, I think is, I'm very excited about this conversation. Um, Katie Lafreniere. And Katie is in uh, marketing. She's assistant professor of marketing at the University of Alberta. And... Uh, we're going to talk about language and marketing and all things important. Now, you guys have been doing a bunch of work. I don't want to preface it. I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to butcher it. How, I, in your words, Katie, what have you guys been working on? Let's start there. We've been looking at the impact of swear words in online reviews. Now, this is fascinating to me. Some situations, someone drops an F-bomb. And it totally erodes and degrades the view of the person. You're like, oh, really? That's all you got to say about it? But then sometimes, Katie, we drop an F-bomb and it's like, yeah, I get it. (laughs) So it could go both ways. What did you guys discover? Tell me about it. We discovered that a well-placed swear word, one or two swear words in an online review can improve not only the number of helpful votes that the review received, but also the reader's evaluation of the product. And so we looked at swear words in their most common form, which is as uh, degree adverbs. So for example, if the review read, the dishwasher is darn quiet, then it would provide information about the product and about the reviewer that readers find useful and changes their opinion of the product. Is it as simple as connection? People are reading in a way that they feel like they speak or they think about it. Cause if you talk about this effing dishwasher and you're like, you know, th- that's where, that's what people talk about. I mean, is it the realism of it? Is it the reading level of it? Uh, what was the work that sort of, 
that you guys discovered that turned into where the true connection lie? Just comfort level, maybe familiarity? Yeah. So we looked at measures of authenticity, honesty, and their impact. Maybe that's what's driving the effect here. And we didn't see it. Not because that those aren't the case in other domains. It's probably just because the online review context itself is already more trustworthy, trustworthy in general. But what we did find was that this swear word was this really efficient communication tool where it communicated not only that the product attribute held to a higher degree than average. So if we go back to that dishwasher example, it's communicating that the attribute of quietness holds to a higher degree than if we were to use any other word that we could have in replace of the swear word. And at the same time, it's also communicating information about the speaker that they feel really strongly about this assessment. And it's those two points of information that the readers is receiving at the exact same time that's leading to this yeah. um these changed effects. Well, so that that's amazing to me because then that sounds like passion, right? They mean it. We mean it when we swear. Um, is, is that a safe sort of understanding maybe of how people are reading? Like, oh, well, they really mean it. Exactly. They feel really strongly about, about the assessment that they've come up with. That's fascinating. It's kind of like when your mom used to use your middle name, right? When exactly. you're in trouble, right? Like, <laughs> Then you're like, oh, mom means it. Okay, so yeah. this is fascinating. So is this a, here was my thought on this, and tell me if you discovered this in the work or not, was to me it seems like if the company hired a professional to write fake reviews of things, they're probably not going to swear. At least most corporations are going to put in a copywriter who's going to write really clean, pretty words, right? So then it becomes not believable, inauthentic. Is it with all of the, scandals that have gone on with companies that have, you know, placed their own reviews and hired their own staff to write reviews of their own products. Is it, could it, could it be a, just a departure of that lack of trust and going, wow, there's no way that they would swear about their own dishwasher to make it more real. That's a good point. And there is some research that links swear words and honesty in other contexts. So not, if we get out of, um, online reviews and we go into just social media in general, there's mm -hmm. been mixed, con There's a, it's actually been conflicting findings where one group of researchers found that swear words led to perceptions of honesty exactly for reasons why you're saying, right? It, people wouldn't say that if they um, if they were trying to restrain themselves in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's another group of researchers that showed that the link doesn't exist. So all we can say about that right now is it's inconclusive. But in the online review context, just to speak about um, how people change when they are writing a review that was paid for or not, there is research that shows that the way people will write reviews changes the moment things they start getting paid or the moment they, um, even if they get like the top reviewer badge on like Yelp or on um, any of those review website platforms. So there can be changes that would impact the way that readers would do it. But generally speaking, there's more research that shows that readers aren't, 
the best at interpreting which reviews are fake and which ones are real. And oftentimes mm. ones that are fake are interpreted as real. It could be like a, um, an angry restaurant owner that's competing against another restaurant owner that's writing it. And just the way it's coming off, it's hard to gauge whether it's real or not. Yeah. Well, it is. It is hard to gauge with all of it's real. And this might be um, outside the scope of your work. Maybe just a little anecdote to share that. So I have a, a, a guy I know, and he has tons and tons of Twitter followers. He's a very high profile person. But he started to swear a lot in his tweets. And I found it off putting. I was like, really? Like, I like what you have to say. Do you have to drop F bombs all the time? Mm-hmm. And I asked, I said, well, it doesn't seem like you. In real life, you're not like that. And he said to me, he said, well, Since I started swearing, he said, I wrote one tweet angrily one day and it got all kinds of traction. And then people started following and everything else. And I found the more that I swear, the more followers I get. I said, yeah, but you don't even swear in real life. He's like, I know, but it works on Twitter. So is that one of those things that's going on that, you know, this becomes such a tactic that it just, I I guess, uh, Katie, I mean, you're the marketing professor. I'm not. But it seems like a very slippery slope. The context, or at least the spectrum of inflammatory language, it's kind of like, you know, you get used to using a bad word, so you use another bad word that you perceive as a little bit worse, and then another one you perceive as a little bit worse. And so, I mean, it seems like a very slippery slope in the world of marketing to be able to market that way. I absolutely agree with you. And I think your intuition is correct. We found that one or two swear words in a review was useful, but the moment you start adding three, four, five swears, at least in the online review context, the effect starts to go away because it becomes unclear if the person is swearing because they're trying to communicate information about the product or for some other reason, like what you were saying, it could just be that, Um, The person is prone to strong feelings or they're the type of person that swears casually. So at least in the review context, one or two swear words, using them minimally, not aggressively, not often, that's where you're going to get this potent effect. But I guess in the context that you're seeing with your friend on Twitter, the first effect probably is in the realm of what we were, we were talking about in our paper. And then once he started getting into the three, four, five swear words, now, again, the swear word probably isn't communicating the information that he's wanting to, but maybe now it's telling more about who he is as a brand and as a person. And depending on the context, less so in the online review context, but maybe in the Twitter context, that becomes valuable information from a branding perspective. It, it depends. Yeah. It's uh, so let me ask you for your marketing head then for a second. If it's outside this context, just your interpretation of it, I suppose, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, but inside, you know, what is swearing and what is all of this? I find it very scary to think that, you know, that, that escalating language I mean, that seems very detrimental to marketing in general. I mean, here's the thing. Emotion typically elicits emotion. I mean, marketing 101, please correct me, professor. Marketing 101, the very first rule is belong. It's the world. It's the word belong. It's the word guy, it's belong. Create belonging that these people belong in and around your product. You will have success. That's just really it, right? And um, how is it that, you know, we can create that belonging, you belong here, 
but do it in a way that there's no end of the road with the language we use to get there when it gets worse and worse. That is that scary as a marketing professional? One another thing, a way to think about it and why it'd be useful not to use swear words so fully. So not just from the fact that, you know, it really only works with one or two swear words and then the effect goes away. But even if we're looking at those one or two swear words, one of the reasons they are impactful and they convey that passion is because they're taboo, right? They felt so strongly that they were willing to break a taboo to by using a swear word. So say we enter this realm where they're con- where marketers now are using swear words, even though that's beyond the scope of our own research. Let's say we get to this place where they're using swear words more and more. What happens then is the words that we consider taboo might not even be seen as taboo words anymore. And so then we're trying to find new words that are taboo and the words that you know, maybe we're mildly taboo, all of a sudden aren't even taboo at all. And so we're kind of changing the flag post as yeah. we... Well, the spectrum really it. moves, right? Really quickly. And that exactly. was, you read my mind. I was, that was, that was going to be my next uh, thought was that, you know, how risque do we need to get? And then, I mean, the, the response of that is kind of like, oh, right? Like, oh, they used that word. But then at the same time, now you've used the word. So now you've created a new normal, right? Like you can't have normal unless you have a rebel. And so when you lean into the rebel, then all of a sudden that starts to change the scope of what is normal. And I mean, I guess I like to feel like we all are guardians of our own language, that this goes sideways really, really quickly. But at the same time, you know, that passion is there. You believe it. So, you know, you kind of need it. it. It's fascinating. So you guys have done this work here inside U of, U of A and, and, and all of that. Is there one thing that surprised you the most when, when you looked at this that, I mean, you're, Katie, you're, you're the assistant professor, but you're still a human being. You still function online. You still go through these things. You read a review before you buy a blender, just like me. Um, so is there anything that really surprised you in this work about swear words might be a good thing in reviews? Well, we did have an intuition that there had that there would be the potential for positive effects just because of how often we're seeing swear words in, online and in reviews itself. What surprised me was that even the the more offensive words like the F word even had this positive and significant effect. It had to be used again minimally only to describe the product, but the fact that the lesser euphemistic swear words and the stronger swear words all could do this, I thought was interesting that, the, you know, there wasn't this effect of maybe the lesser ones being better or the stronger ones being better. They were all useful so long as they're directed at the product. Um, of course, though, once once you move out of the realm of product reviews and looking at the product and you're using swear words directed at people, that's going into a full new territory. And we saw that that had a negative effect on the, per, the how the readers perceived the review writer in terms of being objective. So it was, it was interesting to us that the full kind of spectrum of swear words could have this positive and significant effect. But again, the line was still, it has to be directed mm-hmm. at the product and it has to be used minimally. Yeah, it's funny. That's that classic, right? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. And and um, everything that gets included with that. And we use that in language. And there's some words that when we say them in real life, we just, 
they feel really good to say in that moment, right? But yeah. then there's other words that if you put those words in that moment, it doesn't feel as good. Um, so has this made you more aware, uh, you know, as a human being who does this work every day? You know, often we say, don't take your work home with you. But has this made you more aware studying this stuff and then you realize like how potty mouth we all get from time to time? It does make me intrinsically aware of when I'm, say, just at home with my partner and I'm using swear words and I'm like, and I remind myself that if I'm using it just in a regular conversation, it's losing its impact. So I would actually say that as a human being, since knowing this research, I've been using swear words, ironically, less because I really want to make sure that when I use it, it's giving that intended impact that I want it to. Yeah. You're diluting the story when you're, when you're swearing all the time. That's so cool. Now, I do have one um, very, very hard question that I think that you guys have, I'm not an expert, but you guys have really missed an opportunity here. In the posting at the UAlberta website on the review uh, of the, the, the research you did, I think you guys really should put a comment section because I think this would be fun to allow reviews of the research and to see if anybody swears in their reviews of your research. I, I just feel like it's appropriate on this one. Yeah, we've seen it a little bit on LinkedIn, which is pretty fun. So the Journal of Marketing Research posted, uh, shared the review and so people can comment on it. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of the questions that came up in this interview, you will see them in the chat there. And and another thing is you can kind of see when people haven't read the the even the the literature, which is kind of like, oh, no, don't, we're not saying swear often, we're saying swear purposefully. Um, And to see how that's transforming in conversations has been quite fun. Uh, I just feel like I need to acknowledge the other end of the spectrum. If we always said we loved everybody all the time, it would also diminish how much we love the people that are maybe a little bit more significant than the others in our lives. So it it kind of makes sense on the other end of it. And if you told like your, you, I don't want to get too personal that you're uncomfortable, but or your partner, if you told everybody in your life, the same level of, of love that you share with your partner, right. It, it changes the scope of all things with love. It doesn't mean you really love anybody more than the other, but I feel like that, that end of it really does complement this end of it with the, with the language. It's a, maybe a good lesson in general about overusing all language, not just swear words. It, exactly. So one of the mechanisms that we were looking at was how there's this positivity bias in language processing where we use so many more positive words that positive words end up becoming what is seen as a neutral word. And we constantly have to come up with these more positive terms um, to help communicate when we feel really positive because of how positive we have to speak in general. And that's one of the reasons why using a negative word like a swear word, even if it's in a positive review, has this um, eye-catching effect, right? Um, the the fact that they were a that the word itself, even if it's used grammatically like a ver like a adverb, um, the dishwasher is is darn quiet. It's pulling from that negative taboo background to give that degree word more emphasis. So it is kind of interesting how the effect of swear words in a sense, even comes from the fact that as a general rule, we tend to speak more using positive words. And 
and how that comes into play. Did it come in the research about, we call it in radio, we call it a crutch, which are the words that we use that we don't really, it's more of a brain pause of a word we use. And I'll use my kids as an example, epic or awesome. And everything is awesome and everything is epic that you lose the spectrum of what is actually awesome and what is epic. Now, all of the generations have words that we use to bridge those gaps. We all have language that we use. Now, in marketing, those can be incredibly connective if you're targeting demos, all of those things with demographics, because if you use the word rad, you're probably going to really hit somebody from the 80s. If you set off the chain, you're probably going to say it really hit somebody from the early 2000s. That was, you know, maybe 20 in 2002. So that language use there is really great. Um, but if we use language in general like this, it, it tends to, and it's fascinating to me that when my grandma used to say, um, swearing is just a lack of an intelligent thing to say, it turns out swearing is just like any other word, I guess. Exactly. It's, it builds on its, it's literal taboo meaning to, to convey this level of emotion, motion that other words just, just can't do. And it does it really efficiently. Do you have a favorite swear word? Well, (laughs) I like the F word, not just because it's efficient, but because it can be used grammatically in so many different ways. And it can even be used in the middle of words, like absolutely. Yeah. Put the word, the F word in there. And it's just, it's really interesting how, because it's... (laughs) It's so important, I guess, for people to be able to communicate that level of emotion at some point that they've been able to use it grammatically in all these different ways to to get there. But we all seem to understand it, right? It's the one place that we all seem to understand. If you say absolutely, we all kind of get it and go, oh, yeah, I get that. I feel you. Exactly. This is so cool. Katie, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing this. Um, and, and, and this work I think is really cool. And next time you read a review, see if there's the swears and if they help you and see where you go with it. Uh, Catherine Lafreniere is assistant professor of marketing university of Calgary. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and being here. Thanks for having me. It was great conversation. This is The Shift Podcast. Thank you very much for being a part of The Shift. Lots of nefarious activity going on online and more and more and more of it, it seems. Seems like a good time to bring in Hank. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me. There it is. Uh, that's uh, Hank's dad. Um, that's his song. Okay, Hank the Hacker. Hank Fordham is here, and um, we're going to talk about some hacking. Hello, Hanky. How are you? Love it. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's get started with this story about a Rive can. I, there's a couple of stories we'll talk about, plus we'll just bat the ball around about the general uh, awareness of the hacking things. Um, let's get started with ArriveCan, because that's what I said we would talk about. ArriveCan is an app that the government paid over $50 million for. Now, uh, the government is defending, saying, you know, that's there's other costs associated with that, too, inside the budget, not just the app. But two different app companies decided over the weekend, the long weekend, to hack it. 
Uh, one decided to clone it, and one decided to build it from the ground up. I'm oversimplifying that. But hacking an app to figure out how they could do that, that is a kind of hacking, is it, Hank? Help us understand that. Yeah, I think like they they're using the the term hacking loosely. It's like a like a you know, let's hack this together or something. I I kind of I I think of like taping something together and watching right. it work like a machine, but um you know, I I imagine that while the cost was boosted by delays and, you know, certain infrastructure. I know they mentioned that there was there was some infrastructure that was involved. I think that it's been proven now that the same goal could have been achieved for much less than you know the projected what what i saw was the the range of 29 to to 54 million dollars but either one of those numbers if you cut it in half (laughs) based on what other industry folks are saying that it's a basically a glorified secure form and even if you took even if it was 29 and you generously cut that into a half call it a third 10 million dollars for a, a secure app form, I mean, I built apps. I used a graphic interface to do it. I didn't code it. But, I mean, I could build a form app that had a secure form on it and get it done in a weekend. Say, I was about to right. say I would have built it for a million. Right? Exactly. <laughs> well, that's what one of the other companies said, that we could have built this for a million bucks. Like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> yeah. so it's kind of wild. So, A, help us understand why these things are so expensive in general, because these companies charge a lot of money for this. And and B, you know, what should we really think about this? Do, does the government really get scammed in these things, or do they just get fooled because they don't? They're out of their league. I mean, you, you see development. You know, the the first thing that I saw, honestly, when I saw these numbers, was bureaucracy, and and I I kind of thought to myself, like, okay, you know, if I if I was working at at a coding company, they're pay, they're paying software developers pretty good, and. The, the the amount of policy and compliance that's involved and not only that but the reputation inside of the developer world if anything goes wrong um but they have they have so much on the on the line and so much policy and compliance that they have to get everything right and it's it's usually like you know where i say i i would have made it for a million and and these guys i bet it was a team of no more than than five guys that really were the core developers and doing it at that company in toronto that kind of hacked it together but the team that was behind this project was probably massive and and cross province multi multiple companies involved in you know auditing this the code in the software to make sure that there's no vulnerabilities which you know we've all seen is very relevant now and um, but but also again with the bureaucracy and and the time behind getting something like that developed and and placing the infrastructure like they were mentioning as as easy as as a task as it seems to just develop the app which it is it's a, a low cost should be low time kind of project to develop an app like that um, it's it's all the compliance and policy and and code auditing and and the extra Mm -hmm. time that I think that went into it that kind of boosted that price but I still don't think that you know 29 to 54 million dollars I'd like to see where all of that went but yeah um well I, I hear that I hear that you're speaking to 
you know, the government makes things difficult and you have to invest extra time in them dragging bills and all of that. So, I mean, even that gets built into it. Like, I think some people don't understand about businesses when you pay for something to get fixed. And I, I don't know about cars because, I mean, cars is sort of labor time. But if you just do something like 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 getting a, your car fixed, included in that is the time where you get there and they evaluate the car and then they fix the car for 25 minutes and then they clean the car and they check everything else in the car and then they do the paperwork on the car and then they file it. Usually also baked in there is the accountant doing the billing and everything else. Like all that time is sort of built into that price. Mm-hmm. So those are the unsight unseen things that we all pay for in some fashion, whether it's built into the hourly like duration of the cost or if it's built into the rate of the cost. So, I mean, that is really a thing. But tell me about this cloning and this hacking. It's easier to clone and basically take something out there and try to duplicate it because you can copy paste, manipulate it a little bit, but you're not really innovating. Is that is that how this works? Yeah, and and I mean, like you said, for making a form app, it probably wasn't too hard. It like I kind of there's two kind of ways I pictured it in my head was like, you know, looking at an image and then trying to repaint it your own way, but similar. And then or um, something that was more familiar for me would be like, you know, you can see all these these websites that are just static websites where. It, there's not a lot of functionality or you're not logging into it or anything. And you can go copy those all you want. Like you can copy the HTML and rehost someone else's website, the exact same website. And even with a little bit of creativity or, or coding know-how and, and web development knowledge, you can copy pretty well any website you want and and the same thing kind of goes for app a- applications especially these these form based applications when 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 you look at the, the user experience for a- arrive can it's really straightforward it's you know check boxes hit next 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 like submit your information and then you're you're off to the races kind of but um yeah, so there's not too much complexity and and the challenge behind like remaking the app and making it look functional wouldn't have been difficult, but making that function countrywide would be a whole other challenge in in terms of making different departments cooperate amongst each other and having shared information and being able to you know, the cooperation in airports to have them have people supply documentation and, and again, with policy and compliance. Yeah, well, and there's the delivery of the information needs to be received somewhere and all that stuff needs to be done securely, right? I, so I'm yeah, kind of hearing that. Yeah. Okay, it's far more complicated than, by the way, here's an app, um, mm-hmm. without a doubt. So, I mean, those things are sorely being forgotten. Well, it has sparked an investigation, regardless about how much money was spent on exactly that. Hey, I, the hacker, yeah, I still don't think that, it Not would have that cost much, eh? anywhere near twenty nine million, even. Yeah, that's amazing. Hank the hacker is here on the shift. Uh, that's what Hank does. He does you know securities and all those things with the internet. There was a big hack here with uh, Binance Link blockchain, and they had their own crypto, five hundred seventy million dollars. Now this, the language in this, is is we already don't understand blockchain and how it works in the language as layman normal people. But how is it possible when we've been told all the way along that blockchain is exactly supposed to 
exactly protect us from this. <laughs> um, but yet, $570 million stolen. That's a fair bit of money on something that that's not supposed to happen on. Oh, man. I I was looking at this story, and I was like, how am I going to explain this? It's like <laughs> blockchain is so it's like the hash values and Web3 and the, uh, the smart contract. and But <laughs> you're right that the blockchain was built with privacy and, and anonymity in mind. But um, I, I think before I really dig into it, the really nice thing about Binance is that it, it was it was kind of developed in a way that you can have privacy, but it still enables the control of, of the currency if something goes wrong. So, um, you know, I, I think of some other projects where, you know, all the regulations didn't stop them from mismanaging or, or underestimating the, the financial aspect of, of their project or their liquidity. But in, in this case, uh, what we saw was someone was able to uh, pretty much trick a service, uh, a cross-bridging service on the Binance pl- platform, which which basically it allows you to take one coin and swap it out for a different coin or one token and swap it out for a different token. And they, they were able to, to generate these values. They're, they're called hashes and they, they were able to generate these values and, and basically find a vulnerable and trick the contract on the platform into approving and releasing uh, two very large transactions. Kind of like, you can think of it as like someone going to an ATM and, and they've tricked the ATM into just releasing what it had in its bank in, in the in little, you know, s- secure box in there. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was 2 million BNB coins, which is right now it's worth 749 million Canadian. Wow. So that, but these, this bridge thing um, that you're talking about, um, the blockchain bridges, the stats that I found here is that 1.83 billion has been stolen from bridges, uh, different bridges as of August of this year. 1.2 billion of those thefts occur, uh, happening in 2022 alone. The largest being 190 million stolen and then another 100 million dollar loss in June, 625 million in March. Like this is a lot of money. Yeah. And you know, the, I've I've actually personally kind of interacted with the, this ecosystem because the six hundred and twenty five million dollar hit that that we saw was was on Axie Infinity and that was kind of a a game that operated on the the cryptocurrency ecosystem and it it's a really really interesting project because at some point. Um, with this game and among other projects like it, I was making around $2,000 a day just from running a, an automated game. But really? y- you can see why that becomes a huge target for hackers, and especially when it's kind of still in its pioneering stage. If you think right. about it, cryptocurrency is still in its really in its infancy compared to the World Wide Web. And I, I would say crypto is still in the 90s with the World Wide Web. And right. so we're bound to see these these vulnerabilities and, and exploits be discovered and, and kind of mistakes while we kind of get ready for this. But 
So where do they put it, though, Hank? Like, if you're a bad guy, if you're a black hat hacker, and you're going out here and you've stolen $700 million, it's not like you can just pick that up at the corner store on a transfer or an e-transfer, right? Like, that's doesn't the money have to go somewhere and then in order if you wanted to turn it into actual cash like or convert it to other coins or whatever like you it would have to go somewhere so wouldn't that be wouldn't they be able to find that yeah and and that's the thing that's why i kind of like the bnb uh smart chain is because while you're still afforded your privacy there's things like kyc and uh you know if if law enforcement is is able to get enough training and they and they can gather a large enough data set um they can actually track down cyber criminals by cross comparing just different pieces of of data but um in 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 terms of where does it go on in in this case well while the value is 749 million canadian the guy the hacker only actually got away with a little less than 100 million and the reason is because when when a project puts liquidity into their bridge so that say i wanted to trade you a, some of this coin a for coin b then the platform will hold liquidity so that that trade can happen instantly instead of us waiting and oh, and right, so right, that right. there's security behind it but um if i'm able to steal the money from that that platform binance can if they can catch on to it quick enough they'll they'll freeze the currency on on their chain so you can't send it or spend it anywhere but uh what what usually happened in the past and what happened a little bit in this case with 100 million of the 749 million was um that he was able to put it through mixing services and transfer the cryptocurrency out to trade it and and you know kind of mix it up and and launder it into other c- cryptocurrencies and it it doesn't help that there's there are cryptocurrencies out there like Monero where the the this like sole goal or the sole reason for the project is to remain anonymous and to be able to you know transfer cryptocurrencies and kind of cut off that paper trail if you will uh for for auditors or, or for people trying to look at kind of a, a trail of transactions. That's wild. So it looks like that's he amazing. was able to make off with a, about a hundred million. Wow. That's still a lot of money. I mean, cause you did say only a hundred yeah. million. It's like, uh, yeah, I shouldn't say only. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hank, the hacker here on the shift. Okay. Let's just take for a couple of minutes, Hank, an overarching look at what is going on in the world. The, uh, the, International geopolitics seems to be a big one in the hacking scheme right now, and it, it's only about seven years too late for the world to be hip to the game, but it seems like we're starting to become aware of the fact that some bad governments in the world have been playing some very dirty pool on the Internet. You know, I, I love that you say seven years because it reminds me instantly. My dad used to say, you know, Hank, someday some company is going to hire you uh, as a hacker. And I was like, Dad, they're not they're not hiring hackers yeah. and you know, here we are and it's become such an industry and we're actually ironically, we're just about in the middle of um, cybersecurity awareness month, which I, I think every year it, I don't know if it's like a holiday or it's like a call out or something, but 
it's like all the good, the bad, and the truly ugly comes out of hiding in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So you get all the good guys. You know, I'm I'm doing my my speech, my uh, talk at B sides 2022 at the end of the month, and then <laughs> you've got all the bad guys coming out of the shadows and doing their thing. Yeah. And of course, malware as a service is becoming a little more um, a, a little more available online. As much as they try and take one market down or one forum down, another one pops up. So is that me just basically going and paying some hacker to build malware that I need for whatever reason? Yeah, that was actually part of my demo. Is like the the ring thing that me and you talked about with the mm -hmm. you know holding on to a phone and being able to hack it with an, a ring with an NFC chip in it. You can actually it, you know, the ring is fourteen dollars, <laughs> and and the the software you can actually rent now. I'm not going to say where, but you can actually rent it now for around eighty US dollars. So it's uh, uh, like something that. We like, look online and we see stories with Pegasus from the NSO group, their their mobile rat software, mobile command software, and they sell that for millions. And mm -hmm. now you can kind of get your hands on the same technology for Rented. a couple of hundred bucks. You know, it makes me think of it makes me think of um, Breaking Bad when the guy, the vacuum guy, takes you and gives you a new identity. <laughs> yeah. Right, like you pay a lot of money, and then that guy shows up, and then he takes you to the woods somewhere, and, and then you live off grid for two years, and you make sure you have everything you need, and then you reintegrate into life with a new name and a new identity, kind of thing. And um, I feel like that's what you can now get for only seventy nine ninety five a month. But if you pay the whole year up front, you can get it for fifty bucks. So you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of stuff that's going on is subscription services for bad guys. Yeah, and we used to think like, oh, the black market, you know, it's so far away and uh, it's so exclusive in terms of access or, or, or trying to find it. And it used to, in most cases, exist on the deep web. I was watching a release from the Calgary police earlier a, a couple weeks ago about uh, they found someone 3D printing firearms and... Uh, in, in in that talk, they they were they were just talking about how you know how much more accessible these things are becoming, and and how much the the kind of criminal ecosystem or the criminal element is kind of morphing away from the deep web and even moving into the clear web, as as brazen as that is. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy to think. It's fascinating, and I always appreciate you being here. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we. I don't think we settle people's minds very often. I think we cause more concern, but people need to know. We need to know what the bad guys are up to. Uh, thanks for being here, brother. Really great to see your face. Thank you. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.